Agnazada, welcome to Radio Wolf. Great to have you here again. Thank you for having me. Good to see you again, Thomas. How are you, How are you doing these times? Oh, it's a complex question these days, right? This, yeah, well, you know, I think we're, we're entangled in, um, in the end of modernity, and it's deeply uncomfortable. That's uh, already an interesting starting point for a conversation, mm-hmm. uh, what the end of modernity on one end is, and on the other end, mm-hmm. if this is the end of modernity, uh, what, is, what is coming in, the, in this? Uh, I just listened to a podcast that you gave, I think, a couple of weeks ago, where you um, uh, talked about something that really uh, kind of caught my interest. You talked about... Uh, the sacralization of meaning. And uh, there's something about our time, the end of modernity, that you definitely also can characterize as a huge meaning crisis. John Laveke talks about this in, 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 quite, in a quite big way. And then, of course, the question, okay, uh, I think many people can relate to that, that we as a culture, as a civilization are somehow in a meaning crisis. Maybe that's what also kind of what you meant with the end of modernity. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then there's also a question, okay, what do we mean with meaning? And uh, it seems uh, that there's a connection between the meaning and sacredness that seems to be important for you and your work. And, I, I really would like to, to see how this relates to what you're doing, how you're thinking about the end of modernity and what the relationship between meaning and sacredness maybe is or not. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that the conversation was with, with Steve uh, more at Third Space, right? Um, and the, the sort of entry point to that discussion was this uh, line that is often attributed to Antonio Gramsci, which is, We are prisoners of context in the absence of meaning. We are prisoners of context in the absence of meaning, which I think was his lament in some ways of of, uh, the crumbling of modernity or as as sort of both this decontextualization that happens uh, in, you know, especially if you think about um, the kind of neoliberal order you know, the, 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 the dominant logic that we live in today. Uh, it's, it's very ahistorical, right? You pull yourself up by the bootstraps. There's no, no discussion about, you know, imperialism, colonialism, genocide, white supremacy, you know, all the things that led us to the, the, the moment of wealth distribution. It's just how successful are you in the game of extraction and consumption? And so there, there's no context. And so in that sense, we, we are prisoners of, of context because we don't have uh, even a relationship to our ancestors. You know, uh, like Stephen Jenkinson would say, like we're spiritual orphans, right? As, as sort of children of modernity. And so this lack of context also feeds and informs and is fed and informed by the, the lack of meaning. And, and by the lack of meaning, maybe to say is like, we at one point gave, you know, as, as the, the dominant culture gave, abdicated its responsibility to think because the, the major questions, the first principles of where we're going, why we're here, uh, what is our purpose, uh, 
what is the role of our species in relation to other species, etc. That was given to the church and institutional religions. It was then given to corporations and the market, the god of the invisible hand. Um, it, it's been interpreted by media and, and uh, educational institutions, academia, and all of these uh, traditional institutions of modernity are, are crumbling in the wake. They, it, it's clear that they never were the honest broker or arbiter of, of meaning, yet alone knowledge or wisdom. That, that they, they were these sort of bankrupt parrots of, of capitalist modernity, uh, dis, uh, keeping us disconnected from these inquiries that are both deeply personal and deeply communal. I mean, I'm not sure if I even would go so far that this was corrupted from the beginning, because uh, there was something, I would say, in, in the emergence of the church, talking about Christian churches, but also other religions, institutional religions, where there were some organized forms of meaning-seeking, let's put it that way, mm -hmm. uh, uh, that uh, if from the beginning or at some point was corrupted by power, uh, one, one, one can say, uh, in the same uh, with the birth of uh, science and, 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 and corporate meaning building, there, there was kind of also an attempt to, to free oneself from medieval structures like the church, Mm -hmm. and, and, and create some that, something like rational institutions, mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. academia on one hand and, uh, and, mar and, and business on the other hand as a rational uh, entity to kind of make business. So that, th these were human attempts to, to create meaning, but it very much seems uh, that at least as it looks right now, a lot of it or most of it has failed on us. At least people feel like that. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I would say there's another access to look at this through, right? Which is, it's not necessarily just temporal. It's not like at some point they were pure and then there was a corruption and was that at the beginning or the middle or the end? Mm -hmm. the, the, the way I, I see it is the, the human desire for uh, meaning making is universal. Mm -hmm. It's, uh, it, 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 you know, it's part of what it is to be, Uh, incarnated, right? Mm -hmm. In a in within social conditions and within cultural conditions that you want to make sense of, but as soon as uh, and not to say even some of them have more truth than others, like all of these uh, religious motivations, including science as a theology, are are based on half truths of some kind, right? Mm -hmm. If if they didn't have some form of truth or some form of social utility. Uh, they wouldn't be uh, powerful in the first place. Now, the question is not for me a temporal question, but more of a question of the how, the, the manner by which we approach. And as, as soon as power congeals and there's an institutionalization, there, there, and the combination of institutionalization with the imposition of these ideas on other people is where, for me, the, the let's say, you know, the quote-unquote, the, the corruption moment begins, you know. And so, so, yeah, can you have truth organized within an institution? Maybe, 
the the question even before meaning is like what is truth and what is your belief in truth and so my, my belief in truth is that there is no objective truth with a capital t mm -hmm. that truth is contextual it's relative and it's relational and so uh now th that doesn't mean that i'm uh, a relativist or a subjectivist it means more i'm a contextualist right mm -hmm. that uh, th there's a there's a line by david abram that i really like from the spell of the sensuous he says there is no such thing as objective truth there's only the quality of relationships and and as soon as we try to impose our truth we're violating another's our relationship with another being and and that, that for me is the, the the sort of corruption of of taking truth from a contextual to uh, a universal if 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 i may honing on that because uh, uh, this is a, there's a very cool quote and there's, there's a lot in it because the contextualization of truth that you bring in here mm -hmm. and that uh, David Abram points at has, has several sides to it. And, and one is uh, that uh, when, I, when I talk about truth being relational, I'm not talking about some kind of intellectual truth anymore. There's, there's, there's relationship in. And when we look in our uh, modern Uh, science contextualized understanding of truth. We're looking. We're looking for some intellectual insights. This is true. This is not true. Uh, but what you are saying that this understanding of truth, uh, looking for some intellectual truth form, is already uh, some corrupt understanding of what what it is about. Because, for example, it uh, misses completely the point that here we are, you and I talking right now and there is a relationality that is much more than intellectual insights that has a whole uh, myriad of dimensions to it and uh, if I reduce this to kind of intellect I miss whatever truth is about already and maybe that says a lot about modernist European understanding of what the world is about Mm -hmm. When you uh, started uh, this interview with, uh, this is maybe the end of modernity, maybe we are always at the point where we're realizing this understanding of truth uh, really brought us into deep troubles. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and what, what I, the, the, for me, when I look at the European impulse, it's to then, as this old understanding of truth crumbles, is to then just replace it with another, you know, like, even metamodernity, right, which we were briefly talking about, another imposition of, of truth over the world, which, of course, is more fluid and porous and can hold more ambiguity, but yet mm -hmm. there's a hierarchy, and at the top of that hierarchy is metamodern thought. The rational mind has now uh, managed to create a new, more holistic understanding, and and It, the 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 key of relationality for me in some ways is is awe right it's awe and wonder you can't mm -hmm. be in relationship with something that on 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 some level that you do not have reverence for that you do not have awe for right that that is as soon as you're in that this sort of um state of of mutual awe 
you remove the hierarchy, you remove the supremacy, right? Even the, the, this anthropocentric supremacy that rational thought uh, is, is the, the primary means by which to understand truth mm -hmm. is another imposition on our relationality to, to this entire web of beingness that we, we are entangled with, whether it's the bacteria in our stomach, the ancestors that we are carrying in our DNA, the multiple storylines and song lines we bring to this relational dance, you know, the, the, the fossil fuels and this, you know, computer that's based on coltan and slave labor and, you know, silicon. And there, there's so many weaves of entanglement that to impose any, even the, the, not only is the idea of truth absurd, the reification of it to the detriment of our relationship is even more absurd. The way you define truth uh, is again, uh, something that in the modern context doesn't really make sense. Mm -hmm. uh, because uh, to define truth with all, uh, uh, is is even when, when, when you think about it, uh, what is true about all from a rational modernist point of view? Uh, it, it's just kind of a, a, a response, an emotional or existential response uh, to, to to whatever. Uh, but this is an interesting point because mm -hmm. to understand you, uh, this all. Uh, maybe holds more truth than the most systematic uh, philosophies of uh, or scientific concepts of what reality is about. That there's something that I miss if I don't awe. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, 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 and that even the emotional response is not separate to the intellectual response. Right? Like when we understand quantum phenomena, just like when we, we, we sort of gleam an insight into the nebula our mm. response is awe mm -hmm. and and then the categorization and the rationalization and the making sense and they're, they're, these are lower order functions that we've elevated to the highest level of, of meaning and then we wonder why we are plagued with ennui and anxiety and depression and uh, existential angst mm -hmm. Because we've enthroned what is a secondary response to being in dialogue with a living planet and a living universe and a mystery that is greater than us. I, I really like that because um, I think when one just stops for a moment and listens to that, it, at least it seems to me to, me to be very obvious uh, that uh, this realization of awe of this very moment, whatever this very moment is, and the, the relation, whatever relation I am in right now, for me, this is uh, mainly the relationship with you. If there's not a, a recognition of an awe, I miss something of this reality. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And to call my, of course, I can contextualize basically uh, why we do this call, what is the political context, what is the social, spiritual context, the metaphysical context, whatever. You can talk a lot about uh, In fact, I like all that. I, I think it's important. But so uh, I, yeah. I, I, I completely understand. But the point that you are making, to call that the higher insight, 
then to the inside, wait a moment, there's something to, to uh, have all for. Uh, uh, misses so completely the point of what it means to be alive. And that uh, is something that um, really kind of uh, 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 questions a lot of way, ways how we deal with reality because the way, the way what is really accepted as um, how we contextualize whatever society, culture, economy, human relationship, psychology, uh, our so-called scientific way makes the point that what, what I cannot conceptualize uh, is basically uh, of, of a lo lower insight. But, but the, the point that you're making, maybe it's exactly the other way around. And maybe it's part of the troubles that we are in that we created this form of knowledge uh, in its uh, uh, kind of one-sidedness, because I don't want to put it down either. I, I, re mm. I really think there's a lot to it, but there's a one-sidedness where we um, miss uh, what life is really about. One, one story that really holds that for me, because it's, it's, so, it's so telling, uh, is that uh, uh, one student of Descartes, uh, who is basically uh, at least uh, an archetypal uh, uh, beginning of this whole mindset, uh, uh, really uh, brought uh, the thought, because in this mechanistic mindset of the early modernist thinking, basically there was only subjectivity and objects. And uh, animals are we're just kind of a, a machine in this kind of thinking and conceptualize this kind of machine. And that brought this guy, I forgot his name, to the point when I torture a cat, mm -hmm. it is as unimportant like a squeaking instrument because it's, not, it's, it's nothing but uh, a machine. Mm -hmm. But what kind of absence of empathy do I have to cultivate in order to be, to be able to say that? To, to, to be in, in presence of a uh, creature that is tortured and have this kind of uh, basically cut-offness uh, of, of my senses that I can even think this thought. And to my understanding, this says a lot about uh, what we did with our scientific approach to reality as a whole. And th that many of the catastrophes that we're in uh, at least connected to this relationship to reality. Yeah, yeah, and and to say to to come back to your point around on science is like, of course, science is important, right? Of course, it plays a role. Like the what the scientific method does when it's done well is to give us a, a tool for a certain type of subjectivity that we want to call objectivity but it's more accurately a, a consensus on an ontology, on a way of seeing the world. And maybe science is the floor of a certain type of understanding rather than the ceiling, you see. So, so, so science is a way, in some ways, a, a lowest common denominator way to uh, methodically come to a consensus using a way of, of 
deconstructing reality. Does that make it objective truth? Of course it doesn't. Does it make it all that humans know? Of course it doesn't. Because there's all these other layers of methodology. Intuition is a methodology. Uh, communing with other beings is a methodology. Uh, psychedelics are a methodology. You know, poetry is a methodology. And, and so we've elevated one methodology. Now, of course, the methodology of science plays a very important role in consolidating information in a certain way. And we should not deny that. And there's no need to deny it. What I, I'm, not an, I'm not claiming an anti-rationalist perspective. I'm claiming a trans-rational perspective. And part of the, the crisis, this meaning crisis we're in, is not simply a crisis of epistemology. It's not just a crisis of knowledge or the categorization of knowledge or, or even why we believe what we believe. It's a crisis of ontology, of what we define as reality and the very gaze by which we look at the world. And the, the heart of this kind of ontological rupture in many ways starts in Europe, right? It starts with um, the destruction of pagan ways the imperialistic imposition of Christianity over the continent, the trauma that creates that then gives birth to colonialism, imperialism, the industrial revolution, enlightenment. These are all calcifications of trauma, trauma upon trauma upon trauma, which has affected the very ontological gaze by which we can look at the world. And, and now it, it doesn't matter how much meditation one has done, how many times one has gone to the Amazon and communed with indigenous people or uh, psychedelic visionary plants or what have you. I look at this table that my, this computer is sitting on and I see a piece of wood that is materialist. It's separate to me. I can rationally understand it with my mind and the worst offense is that I'm entitled to move it and manipulate it as I wish. This is the logical conclusion of the ontological reign of terror that is capitalist modernity. Now, I'll give you another ontological perspective that this wood that my computer is resting on is a living being. It's an ancestor. I am in kinship with it. I'm entangled with it. It has agency. It has chosen to be here on some level. And then the, the way in which I interact with this table is then affected by that ontology. And this is why I like the work of Karen Barad, uh, who wrote Meeting the Universe Halfway, who a, a, was a quantum physicist at CERN and is also a political philosopher. And, and she talks about the, the ethico-onto-epistemology that you can't separate your understanding of knowledge from your understanding of reality from the, the ethics by which you will pursue those understandings. These things are entangled. How I see the world and why I see it that way and then how I show up ethically and morally in response to my subjective understanding of the world, these are intertwined things. And one way to understand what, we, what you're saying, or 
maybe a way to paraphrase it, is uh, uh, the only relationship that uh, we cultivated as a cultural practice uh, of European modernity with the table that you're describing is, if you can call it a relationship, an instrumental one. Mm -hmm. uh, the, 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 the only way I, I relate to whatever is an instrumental relationship where I, and that's the ontology, have a subjectivity, an entitlement, and the capacity to create uh, a forms of empowerment in an instrumental way that basically holds all the world. That mm -hmm. is a kind of relationship that excludes all, all other kind of relationship. For example, as strange as it may sound, to have a friendly relationship with the table mm -hmm. I'm in front of. Mm -hmm. uh, have a friendly relationship to the environment I'm sitting in. And, and, and take it serious, not just metaphorically, but take it mm -hmm. serious. Have a friendly relationship, what that means. And they're, they're to, to see how... Um, Maybe on a, a personal, private level, this is kind of okay to say something like that. But as a, on, a, on a culturally accepted level, this kind of relationship uh, to reality that is not instrumental is uh, completely outside of what is allowed to be. It's insane. It's literally it, it's it's called it's called insane, and. Um, of course, he, uh, when one can call it animistic, mm -hmm. uh, but um, to maybe uh, try to, to, to bring it in a way that is more accessible, just the capacity to have a relationship to whatever, mm -hmm. which is uh, more than instrumental, uh, allows a different phenomenology to show up. I go, mm -hmm. I go through the forest different when I allow myself to have a relationship to everything I see there and even uh, have a mutual relationship in, in, in this. It's just that the world changes when I allow myself to do that. Uh, and of course, uh, uh, we organize the whole universe in this instrumental way and, we, uh, and are very successful in that. But our climate crisis and many of our crises a direct result of this. And, uh, and uh, maybe when you say uh, the end uh, of modernity, uh, it is because the, the price that we have to pay for this relationship becomes so obvious right now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I love that, that, that paraphrasing of it. And it, it, it opens up so, so much when you, when you said what you said, right? Which is like to, the, the, the fact that in the dominant culture, to not have a transactional, commodifying, instrumental relationship with the world around you is considered insane. So what does that say about the dominant culture, mm -hmm. right? And now, of course, the dominant culture is incentivized to make you believe that sanity is uh, the fulfillment of your consumptive desire, right? For you to manipulate and transact and uh, instrumentalize the world around you makes you powerful, makes you a useful member of society. And yet 
200 species a day are going extinct on our watch. We are affecting the very living system that we are encased in. We, that to me feels like a much more insane strategy. And then to try to solve the problems that we are creating with more rationalism and more solutionism that creates even more problems because we're using the same ontological gaze. And then the rational outcome of that is geoengineering and putting mm -hmm. particles in the sky. And, and we are on this collision course with, with, our, with our perception. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, we, we are creating the phenomena by which we are trying to avoid. And we're repeating the mistake over and over and over. And that is the definition of insanity. And, and, and could it be that our deep time ancestors who lived in symbiosis with the natural world, as many indigenous people still do, and have this relational worldview that is actually um, more of the logical outcome of quantum mechanics, that the universe at a meta level and the particles and the photons and neutrons and et cetera at a uh, quantum level are literally responding to our intention and our gaze. That it took us uh, this whole cycle of modernity, wherever that wants to start for you, whether it's you know, 1500s and the beginning of colonialism or enlightenment or industrial revolution, what, what have you. Uh, that th this entire period of time that, that we consider modernity has just led back to the exact same place that our ancestors knew, which is the world is animistic. This is not some lower rung ideology on the meta-modern chart. This is much more sophisticated than any philosophy the rational mind can conjure up, no matter how pluralistic. What is the opposite of animism? Non-animism? Something is non-inanimate? What could be inanimate on a living planet that we are constituent parts of? And so the, the, the machine mechanical metaphor of the industrial revolution that we go in, you know, you talked about Descartes' uh, mentee who, who tortured the cat, uh, you know, as did Descartes tortured many animals believing they were continuing this mechanical metaphor, or even the idea of God as watchmaker, which of course there's going to be a secular atheistic backlash to it because we took it too far. We took the metaphor too far. And it comes back to this idea of the subject versus the object, right? The core of Cartesian thought. Mm -hmm. And perhaps the, the dissolution of modernity is also the dissolution of the subject object. The, the realization that there is no other outside of us because mm -hmm. we are entangled. We are entangled on a particle level. We are entangled on a, a oxygen level. We are entangled on a fate of our planet level. We are entangled ancestrally from a DNA perspective, uh, etc. There's no way in which we are not in relation. The question is, are we willing to see it? Are we willing to shift our onto ontological gaze before we destroy the living system of this planet and our ability to survive? No, I, I, I really agree that one one point that really makes difference here is uh, this object-subject divide. 
and to look into its re reality or non-reality. And uh, is this separation really a separation or is not this separation in itself just a cultural construction that we are creating in order to create a certain ontology around, around it? Mm -hmm. One other, uh, also to bring it back to the beginning of the conversation and the question I started with, is the question about the sacred. Because interesting enough, uh, it is one of the classical definitions of modernity, the disenchantment of the world. Mm -hmm. That's, uh, the the sociologist, German sociologist Weber defined modernity exactly with the disenchantment. And if we talk about um, our meaning crisis, um, in the end, uh, we do talk about, is there something for us, for me, that we can experience as sacred? Um, not just makes it sense in a rational way, that's part of it, but even making sense in a rational way only is really, the, really then deeply affecting me if it's more than rational, if that does, if that does something to me, if, if it homes me, that it, it homes me in reality because our things come together in a meaningful way. But just if I contemplate what the word sacred means, and I don't have to have any metaphysical background or definition what sacred means. It's just, just if I if, if I look like the, the word or uh, what does lightness mean, I don't have to have a theory of light to, to understand that light something is lightening up. I have a direct phenomenological experience of that. The same is true uh, with the word sacred. And uh, even if someone is capable of saying nothing is sacred to me, uh, he or she must have an understanding of what this means to, to make this as a meaningful sentence. Mm -hmm. So there's something about the sacredness of life uh, that um, uh, we pushed aside. That in our society, basically, sacredness is, uh, is something that has no space in our uh, cultural understanding of, of, of what is important. And that, is in, that says so much, basically, uh, a, a culture that uh, uh, neglects the sacred or, or what does this mean? And I, I, I find that basically where we went with the modernity is also very much about that our, our, we are able to basically neglect the sacred. What does this mean? The consequence of it is all around us, right? So we, the, the, what it means is that we are telling a living planet and a sentient cosmos that nothing is sacred to us. Okay, we see how long that species lasts, you know, and and uh, and and not to say that there's not a reason we we have rejected what the sacred is. Part of the reason many people have rejected sacredness, even as a concept, is because of the totalitarian monopoly institutional religions imposed on the sacred. They were the mm -hmm. arbiters of what was sacred and what was not sacred. So of mm -hmm. course, the response is going to be, I, I, you can keep your sacredness, right? And you know what, what I'm sort of pointing to here is maybe the root and the heart of what it, sacredness is stems from this subject-object separation. Maybe when we do not see ourselves as separate, as a separate subject, rationally 
categorizing all the other objects, that that interconnection, that interconnectedness, that interbeingness is the, the hollow ground. That our atomized, individualized, um, consumerist culture by its very ontology has severed us from the sacred. And we may rationalize that in different ways. But if we look at all mystical traditions, if we look at many indigenous cosmologies, they're trying, the, the, the aim of many of the practices is to transcend the subject object, to re-enter the continuum of life, to re-enter the field of interbeing. And, and that may not be able to be fully understood by the rational mind. And that does not make it better or worse. It makes it a different type of experience. And it also requires that we uh, develop atrophied muscles because of what modernity has done in the severing to us. And so it requires a practice. This is not like a turn of a key. There's not just a switch, the ontological shift where I, I see you is not separate to me, Thomas. Th this requires decolonization of the mind, heart, soul complex, de-schooling, deprogramming, as well as a relearning, a re-entering of what our deep time ancestors knew to be true, knew to be sacred. So how do you cultivate these muscles? I don't think there's any one particular way. I think if we, mm. if we look at different traditions who are versed in this, you know, who, who are, let's say, spiritually fit, mm -hmm. there is the communion with nature and the immersion with nature. Even the, con the concept of nature is ridiculous to them, as if there were some human and some... These are just conceptions. But the immersion in the living womb of the planet in some way and a relationship to place is one path. The, the other path is uh, the, the, the contemplation of interconnection, right? This is a very valid path. This is what many monastic traditions did. When we look at the Sufi tradition, for example, um, the, the idea of la ilaha illallah, right? There is, the literal translation is there is no God but God. But the, 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 the Sufi interpretation, the esoteric interpretation is, There is no energy except divine energy distributed in equal parts through consciousness. And so they use this mantra as like spiritual technology. You'll see these Sufi elders just walking around telling the tree, the exhaust from a pipe, this table, the phone, the wind, the elements. They're, they're just confessing their unity till they, what we would call, become crazy, right? Mm -hmm. And in, the, in their communities, they were, they were the... the those who could transcend the subject object, who could perceive the ontological shift into interbeing, they were, they were considered like the, the, the highest, most learned member of their community. Their food was taken care of, their place was taken care of because it was seen as a communal function. Even for one human being in a community to re-enter that continuum of life serves the entire community. That is a, a culture worthy of the name culture. We look at indigenous communities and their work with um, sacred plants and their symbiosis with, with, with entheogens. 
right? That we see as other with the Western lens, but they don't, they don't see that, right? Ayahuasca is considered the mother, peyote is considered the grandfather, uh, the mushrooms are considered the little ones. They are intertangled with us. They are teachers and allies who can help shift the ontological gaze. And now that's not the only way. There's whirling dervishes and dancing and yoga and tantra that, you know, Krishnamurti used to say, truth is a pathless land. And, and I think that that's probably a more accurate description of truth than the objectivity of Newtonian Cartesian, Euclidean science. And you allow me to make this also the, uh, the landing point of this conversation. Great. Thank you very much. <laughs>